Episode 7 of the Movies of 1999, a podcast where we watch a movie each week selected by Bingo Machine. My name is Jason Hutchins. And I'm Craig Talbot. And this week we watched two movies, Office Space and Holy Smoke. Towards the end of this episode, we will cross live to this week's movie night to find out what we'll be talking about on next week's episode. So, Craig, how are you today? I'm pretty good. Bit tired. Still recovering from having watched Holy Smoke last night. Anyway, Other than that, really good. And our age, I found that uh, pretty much yeah. you're tired all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. What do you think linked these two movies together? I have no idea, Jason. <laughs> I, I, I contemplated that quite a bit last night when I was watching Holy Smoke and uh, probably thinking some dark thoughts about you. I reckon it sure. would have to be a moment of epiphany. So I'm quite proud of that one because I didn't mean it to be that. I think right. in Office Space there was a moment of epiphany at the um, yeah yeah fair the enough. hypnotherapist. Anyway, let yeah, me read yeah. the synopsis, synopsis for Office, Office Space and we can jump into that. Office Space is a 1999 comedy film directed by Mike Judge that satirizes the everyday work life of a typical mid to late 1990s software company, focusing on a group of disenchanted office workers. The protagonist, Peter Gibbons, is a software engineer who, after undergoing hypnotherapy, becomes indifferent to his job at the company Inatech and begins to rebel against the mundane and soul-sucking routine of office life. Alongside his co-workers, Michael Bolton and Samir Najinan, sorry, that's a sort of in-movie joke, but I have no idea how to pronounce that, Peter concocts a plan to embezzle small amounts of money from the company. However, their scheme soon goes awry, leading to unexpected complications. The film humorously explores themes of workplace dissatisfaction, corporate culture and the desire for personal freedom, making it a cult classic and resonating with audiences who have experienced the drudgery of office work. So Craig, what did you think of Office Space? I think it's a movie that I would have enjoyed in the 90s. So I think it would have made more sense to me in 1999. Mm. I think that's it, it's, it's an, it is a very much a movie of its time. Definitely. Um, I, I can understand why people in America loved it. Apparently it bombed completely in Britain. And I suspected that's because there was a difference in work culture at that time. Mm, mm. And I don't know that it would have translated as well in Australia. I don't actually know how it did in the box office here in Australia. Yeah, yeah. Because I know it had a, yeah. like when it was out on DVD, it uh, became somewhat of a cult movie. Once it was released on uh, VHS and DVD, it became a bit of a cult classic, as you, as they say. Yeah. And it has remained a, a cult classic uh, since then. You know, Mike Judge was a very popular, director at that time he um he received compliments from many different people including jim carrey who absolutely loved the movie mm-hmm. chris rock who uh allegedly left him the best mo- voicemail he's ever received <laughs> and uh madonna actually took him to dinner so it obviously resonated with people in the u.s mm. and mike judge blames the box office performance on really poor advertising by the cinema who i 
don't really think they knew what to do with the movie. They didn't really yeah. know. Well, especially because this was his follow-up to the Beavis and Butthead movie. And I think people yeah. were looking for more of the same. You know, this seems quite boring on the face of it. It's a comedy about office culture. Mm. And I don't think the studio understood the Milton character mm. and the importance of the Milton character and the following that the Milton character had. Um, a bit like uh, Gary Larson's characters in his comic strips. Or Dilbert's um, as well. Dilbert, that's exactly right mm. that's the one i'm thinking of yep it's it reminded me a lot of that i probably have more exposure to dilbert than i do to this particular movie or certainly to milton mike judge was an animator and so this is his first live action feature film and he apparently found it really really stressful because of the switch from being in total control of everything mm. And having to hand things off to, you know, lots of different people to get the movie done. I imagine a lot of these actors with backgrounds in comedy would have wanted to ad lib and stuff like that as well. So you wouldn't have a lot of control, would you? No. And then apparently that did happen quite a bit. Mm. There were little, to give you an example of a little thing that happened that changed the script, the PC load letter scene where... They're talking talking around the printer, which is something I'm very familiar with here That's in right. Australia. Yes. Even though we use A4 paper, it still insists on PC load letter as a message. Like every HP printer for about two decades mm. had that message. Apparently, David Herman had more lines to say to Ron Livingston at the time, but the printer interrupted them by jamming. So that was a completely serendipitous moment. And mm. that, then he went off because he didn't understand what the message went. And so they kept that in the movie. Any IT guy will tell you, we hate printers. So I did feel some real synergy when they were beating the poor yes. old printer to death. Yeah, it was quite a cathartic moment uh, smashing up that printer. But for me, this whole movie was cathartic because in the early 2000s, I worked in an office not too dissimilar from the office space office. So there were cubicles, there mm. was a printer that everyone got annoyed about, and there was someone constantly answering the phone a few cub cubicles away from me throughout yeah. the day, which yeah. just drives you insane when you're a programmer because you're trying to focus on whatever task you're doing. So once we got wind of this movie and got it on DVD, I wore out that DVD. I've seen this movie so many times. So watching it with a bunch of friends at the movie night last week, it just didn't have the same resonance as it did for me back in the day. Like you said, it was a movie of its yeah. time. Part of that is because yeah. I, I was so familiar with it. I knew every single beat in the whole movie, you know. So yes, yes, none of it was yeah. new to me, but also it's no longer relevant. Like we don't work in those conditions anymore. No, I think both both you and I have gone to on to quite different lives. Mm. in our working lives. There are, sadly, a lot of people still working in cubicles in very similar conditions to what you see in this movie. I mean, in Australia, there would still be many, many offices full of cubicles. Mm. So do you have any factoids about this movie for us? Yeah, okay. So factoids. The iconic red stapler that Milton coveted for the, uh, for the film, that was actually not a thing. It, uh, it was created by the prop department for this movie because they wanted a really bright colour to show up in film, and so they chose red. But after the film was released, Swingline, who is a, the maker of those staplers, mm. got so many requests for red staplers that they had to go back and restart the production line of red staplers. They'd actually stopped it about four or five years before, and they restarted the red stapler trend again. So, yeah, so Swingline did actually quite well out of this movie because of that. Milton mm. is actually based on a former co-worker co of Mike Judge who, and when he was working as an engineer. <laughs> like, and and I'm, I'm sure you can empathise with that. Well, yeah, I've, um, run, I've run into people that are eerily yeah. similar to Milton. And, and look, I worked as an accountant. I worked as an IT person. I can tell you that I've met a number of accountants who are pretty close to the Milton character. 
uh, he was talking to one of this co-worker and the co-worker began talking to him incessantly about quitting his job because he'd been forced to move his desk around too many times. I don't think they made enough of Milton in this movie. I kind no, of felt... No, no, he's quite a minor. Milton was... Yeah, yeah I, I felt Milton was... Like, he's actually quite an important character in the movie, especially at the end, but he's not really... I don't really feel like they made enough of no, him. No. No, and, and I think that's one of the problems with this movie is that the narrative that strings everything together is not very strong. Like, really, it's a whole bunch of jokes, which is fair yeah. enough. I mean, it's a comedy movie. Yeah. But then they have this, like, one of the narratives is they're trying to steal money from the company. And the other narrative is that Milton's mm. going off the deep end and threatening to burn the building down. But if you're not paying attention, you don't really follow you along with that character. The, the whole thing of Milton burning the building down, you could have missed that. Yes. And then being completely confused at the, the end of the movie and gone, why is Milton and burn the building down. Yeah, because like, he, he, mumbled, actually does he mumbles so much. and like, Yeah, yeah, I, it would have been really easy to miss that moment. And I think Milton fans, they probably came away a little bit disappointed as well, I suspect. Yeah. Apparently he chose Ron Livingston as the main character deliberately because he didn't want anyone who had star power. Yeah, I knew him from Swingers, which was a big movie a few years beforehand, like a big indie movie. Who did Mandalorian? Who who sort of started that? John Favreau, yeah. John, John Favreau is one of one yeah. of the directors. Yeah. Yes. So John yes. Favreau did Swingers, and Ron Livingston was in that. So I, I knew him from that. I didn't realise. Uh, I did have a bit of a chuckle at this little factoid. TGI Fridays, who are actually here in Perth, mm. they actually used to have their wait staff wearing flair exactly like really? it's depicted in the movie. And they actually stopped as a result of the movie. Oh, really? So in the 90s, they had their, their wait staff wearing the flair. And I would imagine their um, reasoning was much the same. And yeah, it was a it was a thing. So I, I was amused by that because I, I really thought that was a bit of a comic thing. But, you know, yeah. as, you know as, as often in comedy, real life is stranger than fiction. I think you could probably say almost every joke in this movie was probably inspired by uh, something in real life yeah a lot of the movie i, I look i could i could relate to they were working on y2k i mean that yeah in this exact time period as i think i've mentioned on the podcast before i was doing exactly that job why did we leave it until 1999 to fix this problem it's just in time <laughs> just in time let, yeah let, like nobody yeah. wants to pay money to do maintenance so no there's a little bit of a link to our simple plan simple plan keeps Coming up in our podcast over and over again. Because they, um, because they stole money. Is that the link? No. Well, so there is a link between the two movies. So Office Space was released two months after A Simple Plan. And both films are about three men and their failed conspiracy to keep money that doesn't belong to them. Mm. Um, so they're both failures. And both films feature Gary Cole as the main antagonist. Ah, of course. Gary Cole. I forgot about him. Yeah. Yeah. So he's in both. And actually, he looks very similar in both mm. movies. For me, the character of Lawrence, who's the, oh, he, the yeah, so... yeah, Diedrich Bader, I really yeah. felt he saved the movie in yeah, yeah. A, a bit because he was the only one who really acted with genuine comedy at times. Mm, mm. Probably himself and AJ Nadu, who plays Samir, I thought yeah. those two characters probably brought a little bit of life to the movie. Yeah, yeah. I kind of felt like Jennifer Aniston kind of phoned in her role a little bit. She, she and apparently it. she um, only filmed her role over two weeks. Mm. So she obviously, you know, did it pretty quickly. It does get an entire chapter in in the book. So I did read that with some interest. Um, obviously, Brian Raftery absolutely loves this movie. 
It was considered a black comedy. I, I have to be honest, I, I, because it doesn't age well, yeah. I didn't find myself laughing out loud a lot. I'm not sure why it would be a black comedy. I mean, it's just a comedy. There's nothing dark about mm. it, is there? It got 81% from the critics. It was quite liked by Roger Ebert and his crew. Mm. I'm not sure with this movie what uh, our friends uh, Margaret and David thought of it. We'll find out at the end of this episode. Sure. There's some other uh, interesting little things. Gary Cole has a birthday cake in his character, Lumberg, during the <laughs> yes. movie, and he turns 41. He probably was 41 during the filming of the movie. I, th- I would imagine Office Space probably uh, inspired some of the, the later Office series. I think so. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. so. And, and, of course, um, the director went on to do Silicon Valley, which is a more modern take on Office Space. Yeah. yeah. I haven't seen that movie, but um, I've heard I, it, good It's a TV series. It's like three or oh, four sorry, seasons. Yes. But it's very, yeah. very funny, yeah. The, uh, obviously, there's the whole reference to Michael Bolton, which I think, again, is something that doesn't age very well because a lot of modern audiences would go, who is Michael Bolton? Mm, but true. it's true. He was pretty huge at the time. I don't, it, no one seems to have asked him what he actually thought about the movie, whether he because uh, he, ha- he gets pretty hammered in the movie. So there you go. And and Mike Judge does get a uh, cameo at Ch- at Chotsky's because oh, he's he? um yeah he's Joanna's boss, Stan, the guy oh, who tells her. Oh, is he really? That, I, I had yeah, no idea. Yeah, so <laughs> apparently he's uh, he's her boss in, oh, right, in right. the movie, and he's listed in the uh, in the credits as William King, but it's actually him. So right, King one. of the Hills. Yeah, is yeah. He actually, actually he's actually visible in the movie a couple of different times. All oh, right. Um, he's in shots in the movie a few a well, few different times. Well, he he's performing in Office Space is really good in that case. I, I think that like her boss is, is one of the great characters yeah, in that movie. Really, really annoying. Yeah, <laughs> really yeah, annoying yeah for that reason. For that reason. Yeah, yeah. But, but no, it's a good performance. Because again, yes. you, you know people, you've encountered people like that in real life, you know. Like, yeah, yeah. Look, Just doing all things of the by car- the book and taking mm. things too far and, yeah. Like these middle management bosses in these retail companies, they're, they're all like that. Mm. They just follow mm. the, you know, they follow the rules, even when the rules don't make any sense. Our friend Will actually went down a little bit of a rabbit hole with the TPS report, and then he made uh-huh. me go down the rabbit hole too. So a TPS report is actually a real thing. I don't think it's a it's a methodology that's used in programming anymore, but it was definitely being used in the 80s and 90s and probably earlier. It's A TPS report is a testing procedure specification document, and it actually has its own IEEE yeah, uh, but uh, specification. But we were talking about that, and the IEEE right. spec was post-1999. Oh, is it? Oh, okay. It was like All early right. 2000s uh, or something. So there's like a chicken and egg situation going on there. Like, did the movie inspire the IEEE spec? Is it all a big joke or were these um, things? Well, there were there were procedures like that. For sure. Um, For sure. I've never worked in a company that was that formal. No. So you've probably worked in environments more, uh, much larger than me. So yeah, yeah, the, like the one place that I worked in where we had to do code reviews by printing out hard copies of the code and then sitting down next to a person who would go through the code line by line. That was goodness. that was fairly reminiscent of this le- yeah, leaving never... a paper trail of every single thing, every single decision. Yeah, right. Different world, I guess. Yeah. Um, Look, I enjoyed Office Space. It's always been a favourite movie of mine, but I think I've just watched it too many times over the years, so it didn't have the same impact as some of the other movies have. So let's move on to Holy Smoke. 
Holy Smoke is a dramatic film directed by Jane Campion featuring Kate Winslet and Harvey Keitel in leading roles. The story unfolds as Ruth Barron, Winslet, a young Australian woman, travels to India and becomes deeply involved with a charismatic cult. Concerned for her well-being, Ruth's family deceives her into returning to Australia, where they have arranged for an American cult deprogrammer, PJ Waters, Keitel, to intervene. Set in the isolated Australian outback, the film explores the intense psychological battle between Ruth and PJ, blending elements of drama, comedy and romance. As their power dynamics shift, both characters confront their own vulnerabilities, beliefs and desires, leading to unexpected emotional and personal transformations. So, Craig, what did you think of Holy Smoke? Uh, <laughs> do I have to say nice things? No, you, you don't have to say nice things. Just be, be honest. I put off watching this movie until the last minute. I'll yeah, me, me too. I put, it uh, off. I put it off based on that horrible trailer that we saw last week. Yeah. Look, I think Kate Winslet and Harvey Keitel act really well in this movie. But, yeah, the rest of the movie, just what, what, why? <laughs> it's, mm. it's listed as a comedy, drama, romance movie. I didn't find myself laughing a great deal, except incidentally because Sophie Lee was just a space cadet. Well, I mean, she was anyway, you know, but she definitely comes across as one in this mm. movie. And the character of Robbie was just... Probably deliberately they were put in there for comic relief. Mm. The whole thing with the guy sitting around in his budgie smugglers. A scene I could have... The father sitting around in his budgie smugglers, that's a scene that I could probably do without having watched ever again. That's a mental image I don't need (laughs) in my life. It's a Jane Campion movie, and allegedly our uh, our dear friends from uh, the movie show really liked this movie. Yeah, David gave it five stars. For the life of me, cannot understand why. It was written by Anna Campion. I didn't actually get the complete facts on this, but I'm assuming she's related to yeah, sister. Jane Campion. Sister. sister, yep. Her and Jane wrote the movie, and then Anna subsequently wrote a novel that became the basis for the screenplay, but it was also released as a book after the film's release mm, okay. and has actually gone on to be quite a popular book, probably more popular than the movie, to be fair. Well, the movie was um, a bit of a flop, wasn't it? Yeah, it's got a pretty low score on Rotten Tomatoes, 46 and 47% Mm. on Rotten Tomatoes. I think that's probably a a little bit unfair to it. It's got a bit of a meme quality to it because of the nude scenes with Kate Winslet in it. There's a lot of stories around the filming that that come up quite a bit. Kate Winslet in particular has some quite funny stories to tell, which we'll go into in a little while. I found the dichotomy between Kate Winslet and Harvey Keitel being in this movie and the other characters really strange. They kind of took me out of the movie. Mm, Yeah, I think a lot of that's deliberate, though. I found it jarring, particularly her mother. I I can understand why her mother was written the way she was and why she was played the way she was, particularly the scenes in India originally. I can understand that kind of Australian point of view from the time of, you know, finding India terrifying and like having a complete meltdown mm-hmm. because there's so mm-hmm. many people and yeah, she has all a of panic that attack. kind of stuff. Yeah. But it kind of didn't make a lot of sense to me why that needed to be in the movie. But it, look, it was an artistic decision, I guess. 
Yeah, yeah. So so what happens is Ruth is a young Australian woman. And I must say that Kate Winslet does a pretty pulls, good uh, yeah. Australian accent. She, she, she pulls it off quite convincingly, yeah. So she travels to India and, you know, on a, a soul-seeking journey with a friend of hers and has this religious experience when they go and visit a um, guru called Baba. And she sort of suddenly becomes, you know, she has this religious experience of some sort. Yes. Um, her family thinks she's fallen into the clutch of an evil cult and they need to yes. they need to trick her into returning to Australia. And that's what her mum goes over there for. And the story is meant to be that, oh, your dad's had a stroke and he's sick, you've got to come back. But Ruth doesn't seem to worry about that too much. What actually no. gets to her to come back is her mum has a panic attack and, yeah, it, yeah, and has right. to be taken back yeah. so so the plan goes off the rails somewhat so I think that that's why it's in there you know because there was no other yeah. way of getting her to come back to Australia so when they were researching the film they went off and uh, looked at various different cults and there are obvious parallels here to a very popular cult at the time the Hare Krishnas who were quite big at the time and they still exist here in Perth they were actually quite pretty huge here in uh, uh, Western Australia yeah. they found a lot of parallels with the Hari Krishnas and many of the women that they encountered in that were basically incapable of talking about anything other than the chants and all the sort of stuff that they said every day. It's uh, it's an interesting one because there is a character in the movie who basically always answers her mother with, oh no she can't go, she's getting yes. she's getting initiated next week and all this kind of stuff and rah rah rah. Yeah that was a yeah. weird scene as well, that's what triggered the mum when they were about to go into this ceremony Yes, and there, there was yes. so- somebody standing out the front sniffing everyone's hair and she didn't want to have her hair sniffed. I didn't really understand that. Clearly the barber or whatever had a thing about people's hair smelling or something. Mm. So everyone had to have their hair washed before they went into the thing. And yeah, there's this bizarre scene of these two people standing there sniffing everyone's hair and rejecting your hair if it doesn't smell Mm. right. Mm. And then there's quite a lot of stuff about other cults in the later in the movie, ones which are much darker. Yeah, they show show a lot of archival footage, don't they? Mm. Yeah. When they all sit down to watch Jonestown and... Yeah, luckily that kind of stuff seems to have become less frequent now. There was a period of time when those kinds of cults were much more frequent. Yeah, and they also um, show footage of the Sharon Tate killings. So that was Roman Polanski's wife. And and there's that other one where they thought they were going off into space. So I think there was a point that Jane and Anna Campion were trying to make. Yeah, I think there's a deeper like there's something deeper going on with this movie that you kind of miss because like they haven't told the story in the best way I don't think no you you know what was quite striking for me is that Ruth is always dressed in white and she go she travels to India this very foreign environment where she has this religious experience Harvey Keitel who's the exit counselor he does the opposite he's dressed in black he travels from America to Australia and Australia is like this crazy foreign country to him because I think they really dial up the Australiana in this movie. Oh, yes, they did. Like yeah. they, they go to an emu farm, you know, they have all this crazy stuff happening. So it would look just as foreign to an American audience as India, probably. Yes, I think that's true. And yeah. he, he has the same experience as her. So he travels to Australia. He has an epiphany, but his isn't a religious epiphany. His is more uh, sexual, you know. Yeah. But it's the same yeah. thing. And like they both have these moments that begins this transformation process. Then there's a point in the movie where they swap and she becomes the controlling one 
Yes, that's true. And, and I think that that's quite clever, but they just didn't really pull it off. And right at the end of the movie, she dresses him in a red dress. And you kind of think, yes. well, that's just a little yeah. bit kinky or something like that. But <laughs> if you go back to the beginning of the movie, he's questioning mm. her belief in Baba. And he yeah. sort of makes light of it and saying, oh, he's just a man dressed in a, a dress. That's, yeah. that's how he describes Baba. And, right. and, she, and she goes on about how she wants to marry Baba, but that's like a symbolic marriage because everybody... That's right. But at the end of the movie, he has become Baba. Yeah. yeah he yeah. is dressed in the dress. He says, marry yeah, me, right. marry me. And I, I thought that was quite clever. But again, it's something that you don't really follow unless you pick up on the little clues at the beginning of the movie and then tie it back with what's happening at the end of the movie. So a lot of those filmmaking decisions of doing things that just seem a, a little bit weird... I think they were trying to tie it together that way and show that both of these characters were on journeys kind of in opposite directions and they intersect in the middle there and and they both have this transformation and and I think the way the movie ends where they you know they write a letter to each other it it's kind of trying to make that point I think it was a movie searching for what story it wanted to tell it was trying to tell the story that you mentioned, yeah. but it ended up being like this weird romance thing, but in a disturbing kind of way. I think that's um, maybe how it was marketed. Yeah. That's certainly what the tra- trailer was trying to say, is that it was this yeah, yeah. down under romance. But I don't really buy the romance part of the, the no, story at all. No. It's, it's more just about it, both of these characters having an epiphany and then transform, like that leading to a transformation in their lives, I think. It's an interesting one. I, I noticed that um, Kate Winslet really enjoyed working with Harvey Keitel, and there's quite an interesting little story that she tells about working with him, and I'm sure perhaps you've seen it, where they did a lot of improv at the beginning of the day to sort of get themselves into the into the, the acting mode. Mm. And so Kate, Kate Winslet tells this story of where she's uh, she walks in with Harvey Keitel and Jane Campion says, oh, what are we going to do today? And Harvey Keitel comes up with this crazy sort of story about, look, I'm going to act like a dog and I'm going to be a dying dog and you're mm. going to be my owner. And Kate Winslet's standing there and going, what on earth is going on? And, the yeah. moment is, yeah. and she, said, she says in the interview, you know, I'm looking around for the cameras to see if there's someone filming this as a prank. Mm. And then she realises that Harvey is quite serious about what he's saying and so yeah. she then gets in into it and um carries on with it and and the the little clip from um graham norton it was was it was quite hilarious because <laughs> she plays she plays the accents of all the different people jane oh, as she's telling the story and harvey as she's <laughs> doing the story and she's actually very she does it really really well and the dog and the dog, she does a really good job with the dog too. She's quite talented with her um, vocal ability. Mm, yeah, yeah, she, she yeah. I was switch, really impressed with switch that. Switch accents, no, <laughs> no trouble at all. When you look so at that, her in the Steve that, Jobs movie and stuff like that, you wouldn't even know it was her. She, she pulls off really good accents. They come from very different schools of acting, don't they? Like Harvey Keitel is all method. And uh, Kate Winslet's obviously a much more practical, straightforward sort of actor. Mm, yeah, yeah. Get the scene done. So I was going to give you a little factoid. Go on then. So you know when the family has that crisis meeting and they're going to have a plan of what to do and this consultant comes in, this guy called Stan, he's got like really curly hair and yeah. he's the guy that says we should get this American to come over. 
Do you know who that mm. consultant? He looks very familiar. He's a comedian, isn't he? He's ostentatious. Oh, right. Yes, that's what I was thinking of. <laughs> so he's quite famous for, for recording a lot of comedy albums mm. and things like that, Australiana or yes. something like that. Yeah, very, very Australiana. That's very right. Australiana. So it was quite funny to see him acting with Harvey Cartel because, you know, I know Harvey Cartel from Tarantino movies. and yeah. so, so to see yeah. him acting with Ostentatious and Sophie Lee is kind of crazy. But Ostentatious was also in the movie we watched last week, Strange Planet. Was he? Yeah. So, so oh, okay. There's this really weird thread tying these two movies together as well. So I really like the opening sequence where they told the story of her whole transformation, including the guru coming up and opening her third eye or whatever he does. Yes, yes. The movie opens in India with a Neil Diamond song, of all things, Holly Ho- uh, yeah. Holy, yeah. which just seemed out of place, but I I went down a bit of a Neil Diamond rabbit hole. Oh, no, here we go. Because... Here we go down rabbit hole. <laughs> I did wonder about the music. I thought, you know, in both movies, the music didn't really fit either movie. That, that's definitely a bit of a rabbit hole there. So, so they used a live recording of the Hot August Night album, which ends up like that album sold like hotcakes in Australia. And if you grew up in Australia in the 70s, like my dad and my uncles just played that album all the time. Yes. And I don't think I've ever really re-listened to any Neil Diamond, but it's just a memory of my childhood. Um, Jane Campion or someone who was working on the movie was clearly a fan. Clearly a big fan, yeah. It was really strange because you had all these Indian scenes and then there was like this Neil Diamond music over the over those Indian scenes. Mm. Did you notice that? Yeah, yeah. And then there were... How they, how they tied it into the opening sequence is there was a rooftop party with all these um, backpackers and that was the music they were listening to. So they were all singing along to it. I don't know. I, I enjoyed the music. I enjoyed that whole opening sequence. I think they summarised her experience, you know, in five minutes or so. They did that quite well. It wasn't a badly made movie. I just don't think all. it worked. It, it looked great. It, yeah. it, it, it looked good. It sounded good. I think Kate Winslet's performance is excellent. I thought Sophie Lee was, was really good in this movie. You sort of said she was a bit of an airhead uh, at, at the but beginning. But I think that was her role. That was yeah. her role. But she's actually a really good comedic actor. And I, I think she just didn't have the career that she would have had if she was going into acting these days. Because as a performer, she pulls off these scenes. She's acting with Kate Winslet and Harvey Keitel. And I think doing a pretty mm. good job of it. I, w- yeah. I would almost compare her to Margot Robbie in some ways. Like she was the potential Margot Robbie of she was. of the late 90s it, it went really weird at the end didn't it like it just sort of went a bit i felt it when i felt it went a bit off the rails towards the end it, it was just sort it, of like it went totally yeah. uh, 1999 uh, <laughs> yeah in, in the end it was a movie of yeah. its time in that sense um i have yeah. another interesting factoid which i didn't read anywhere but everyone in the family is assigned a role so sophie lee's character is on supplies her brother, who you mentioned before, he was on security, security. or something. Yeah. And then their mate, this guy with long blonde hair and quite muscular, <laughs> he was the bodyguard and his character's name was Fabio. Is that's actually him? <laughs> it's not the real Fabio. The re- it's it's not the real Fabio at all. It's some Australian actor, right? Um, no, I'm pretty sure it's Fabio. No, it's not Fabio. Fabio was around at the time. Fabio was around at the time, but that was not Fabio. But he was a total lookalike of Fabio. And the fact that his uh, name was Fabio was... It looked like him. Yeah, I know. Uh, I know. It looks exactly like him. It's not him. It's not him? He's not, not listed in the credits? 
Uh, I didn't no. actually look, uh, to be honest. Uh, You've got me going down a rabbit hole now. Well, there you go. He, he was um, so convincing that you thought it was the real Fabio. Oh, no, it's a guy called Simon Anderson. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like he plays the Fabio. Yeah. He looks like the the Fabio guy. I thought it was Fabio. No, no. He's almost, he, he was definitely around at that time. He was around at the time, but this is some Australian actor who looks like Fabio and his name right. is Fabio. And at the beginning right. of the movie, he's running after a ball and runs into a, a post. Yeah, and, and ends up covered in blood. And he, yeah. he breaks his nose and he's got blood all down his shirt. And for the rest of the movie, he's got a, a patch on his nose. Now, yeah. now, interestingly, the real Fabio in 1999 was at the opening of a roller coaster. Oh, okay. And as he was riding on the ro- roller coaster... A goose hit him in the face and broke his nose, and he ended up with blood all down his shirt. Right. And the real life Fabio went on the roller coaster and had his nose broken after they finished filming of this movie. So this movie predicted the real life Fabio <laughs> having his nose oh, broken. Dear, dear. How about that? That's the best fact that I'd is, ever. That, that is pretty cool. That's a, that's a good fact. I'm going to give you that one. And is you've, that, you've won the, is that even you've won on, fact of the day, Jason. I'm going to have to add that to Internet Movie Database because I don't think that's on there. Yeah, I didn't realise. I actually genuinely thought it was the real Fabio. Because <laughs> I thought he was in Australia at the time. It's such like a bizarre was... thing that they had a character called Fabio mm. that looked like Fabio. It was an interesting character because it didn't really make any sense in the context of the movie. There's Not this at all. weird blonde guy with long hair. But it was just and part of the really quirky make... thing that yeah. they were trying to do with the Australian characters, yeah. As you say, I think you hit it on hit the nail on the head when you said they tried to turn the Australiana up to eleven. I mean, that whole thing with the budgie sm- the guy standing around in budgie smugglers was pretty strange. Yeah, yeah. But again it's yeah. saying something about men and contrasting that with India. There's a mm. sequence where she's catching a bus in India and the men are touching her because she's out of place, I suppose. Yeah. And then yeah. that's contrasting that with her friend returning to Australia and going to tell her mum and dad that she'd sort of fallen under the spell of this guru. And of course it's completely normal in Australia for the dad to be walking around in budgie smugglers and having a beer, you know, when a visitor comes to their house. You know, the girl doesn't, you know, raise an eyebrow. It's just that's normal. So I think it's trying to contrast those two things, like what we accept as normal and and what's foreign, I suppose. So towards the end of the movie, Kate Winslet's character, Ruth, she just gets drunk and goes partying and kisses girls and all, all that sort of stuff. All of that stuff. Yeah. They go to this rock show and it's the angels performing Am I yeah. Ever Gonna See Your Face Again? Couldn't get more 90s if you tried. Yeah, um, yeah. actually couldn't, more. Couldn't get more Australian. 80s, I loved the angels at the time and obviously that's an iconic song and much loved. With the crowd singing along, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess it comes back to, as well, it was nice to see a bit of an Australian movie, even though it wasn't really an mm. Australian movie. It, it was nice to have, like, an Australian background. Kate Winslet pulled off the Australian accent really well. Like you yeah, she did. She wasn't Australian. Her, her performance um, is really, really good in this movie. Yeah, I think Harvey Keitel's is good as well. He has this stare that he does. So when um, Ruth is partying, she, in some sense, is teasing him or betraying him, and he just gives her this death stare right right down the barrel of the camera and he's quite good at doing that sort of thing also as the cult d programmer or the exit consultant or whatever he calls Mm. himself he needs to work with a partner He, he makes a big deal about this and he expected there to be this partner for him to work with in australia so it was going to be two against one kind of thing stan explains that oh the the guys had a family emergency and he can't be part of this This was another thing that was a bit subtle, but he asked then for his partner in America to be flown over. 
which is his wife, or I don't know if they're married or not. Towards the end of this movie, she arrives, and it's Pam Greer of all people. And just a year or two before this, she was in Jackie Brown. So, so both um, yeah. Pam yeah. Greer and Harvey Keitel are, are favourite actors of Quentin Tarantino. So, yeah. so, yeah. so she arrives, and she only has a very small part to play in this movie. But I was just—I can't believe she's in this movie. I wasn't even expecting it. Sorry, there's this weird scene where um, Harvey Keitel's got these two twins at the end of the movie. Oh, we've got twins now. My, you know, my girlfriend forgave me and we've had twins and, you know, mm. this is my life now. It's kind of a little bit like what I was saying about David Lynch last week. It's like these directors sort of couldn't resist having these silly moments in the movie. I, th- I think that was an attempt to, to show what his transformation was. He was very much a misogynist. Mm. You know, he was just after young girls for, for sex and that was his transformation, but I don't think they really tied it up. Uh, no, I don't, think, very satisfying I don't think the movie, this movie doesn't quite pull it off. No. It's a shame because it had the potential to be a better movie. I think if it had been a bit tighter and a bit shorter. I think part of their mistake was they sort of trusted the audience a little bit too much to tie some of the threads together. Right. Because a lot of the important things that happen in the movie are glossed over very quickly. Um, yeah, and then other things that aren't really that important seem to get a lot of re- repetition. Yeah. Like, there was a whole section in the middle, middle of the movie where I was genuinely pretty bored mm. because it just didn't seem... The movie didn't seem to be going anywhere and all they seemed to be doing is talking about the same things over and over again. Like there was this attempt to have this narrative of, oh, this is day one. This is day two, mm. this is day three, this is what's going to happen. But then not a lot of was made of that. So, um, you know, you spent three days listening to the two of them argue with each other, and which for me didn't make a compelling movie. I did like the, the moment where he lights the candle and talks about the flame. Yeah, be- I thought that was good. And, and they film her through the flame. But you're right. I, I think there was a lot of the movie that could have been cut out quite frankly. Their philosophical reckon, debates um, yeah, when they're a lot, of, that, a lot of the, yeah. there was a lot of exposition from both Harvey and Kate that could have been cut out. Yeah, they, they should have and spent that time more. Uh, joining the threads a, a bit more clearly. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think the movie would have made a lot more sense if it was about half an hour shorter. He also writes on her forehead as well, be kind. Yeah. It was like it was one of these moments which I think was intended to be really significant. I, I think I think it I, was because I think it was a callback to oh, what okay. happened in India because everyone marks right. their forehead. So then he was marking her forehead. That was supposed to be her realization that yeah, she's a nasty person and and and, I, and she I, does reform herself and returns to India with her mum. And and I, I think there was a, an attempt to rehabilitate her character at the end of the movie. That's right. Making her look right. bad for most of it. For me, the the ending was yeah, especially with Harvey Keitel lying in the farm, lying on the farm on the dirt of the farm in his red dress. You know, being having been pecked by the emus, all of that sort of stuff. I think um, I think the movie could have ended yeah. there. To be honest. I don't think they yeah, needed this I, little too, yeah. denouement or whatever you call it of them writing letters no, to I, each other. Like one year later, it didn't need that. Yeah. She ends up mothering him right at the end when he's he's a ruined man lying in the in the back of this ute. I, and then, I really felt yeah. uncomfortable with that scene. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know why that scene had to be in there. I think I think without that, it would have been a better mm. movie. 
I don't know. Because um, right, yeah. right in the ending, she writes to him, like, something did happen out there. And he replies and said, yeah, something did happen and it almost killed me. And, and they're trying to create mm. some sort of mystery around what this something was. Yeah, d- yeah. To me, that was a little bit try-hard and they could have lost all of that. I think the word try-hard is a little bit descriptive of this movie. It tries yeah, hard yeah. to be a lot of things. Yeah. And not Jane yeah. Campion's best movie. This was a huge flop for her. I think it was a $14 million budget. They only made one or two million dollars. Is that right? And you compare that to The Piano, which was maybe yes. early 90s. That was a seven million dollar budget and it was huge. It made 140 million dollars and I think that gave her the freedom that she needed to make a, yes. a movie like yeah. this. But clearly they couldn't market this in America and it was a bit of a flop. This movie is also tied very loosely to um, the straight story because who is on the soundtrack? Our mate Angelo Bedlamente. Oh, is he really? David Lynch's collaborator oh, right. has a song in the soundtrack of this movie. Oh, right. <laughs> Goodness. So of all things. Um, the soundtrack is not a strong point of this movie. Really? To be honest. I, 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 don't, I didn't feel so. Well, it, re- I, I, it reawakened I your, my Neil Diamond <laughs> listening. I, I get the first scene, but the rest of the music is pretty... Oh, but also um, the angels. The, Am I ever going to see your face again? Oh, okay. All right. I'll, 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 I'll pay you that, that one. The angels. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, pay, I'll pay the angels. Uh, and also, Tim Rogers of UMI is an actor in yeah. this movie. Yeah, I noticed that. I was trying to remember who he was, yeah. so well done you for remembering who he was. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, yeah, because he, he I, I remember him because he was on um, another iconic Australian thing, Spicks and Specs a lot. Right, uh, right, yes. I recognised him, but I just couldn't remember exactly who he was. I hadn't actually yeah, I, joined the I dots, had no so. idea that he acted with Kate Winslet and Harvey Keitel, and I think he gets punched by Harvey Keitel because he's one of the two blokes in the back alley trying to... Yeah, he does. Like, ...hassling out yeah, Kate right. Winslet. Yeah, yeah. She did yeah. a lot of promotion for this movie. She was all over the place talking about this movie. She, so. She'd only done Titanic a, a couple of years before uh this movie yeah yeah she was pretty big mm. yeah yeah she was a, a very well recognized star she was the kind of person who all the chat shows wanted to have on i mean yeah, she certainly had some stories to tell about this movie it's it's probably more famous for its stories than it is for the actual movie itself well probably uh, the elephant in the room the one that we haven't spoken about yet is the urination scene apparently it's a bit of a me like it's a bit of a thing like there are entire YouTube videos devoted to the urination scene mm-hmm. and Kate Winslet's uh, explanation of it. Yeah, so, I don't know why that was necessary. That, that, that's honest. my question. What is the significance of this scene? Because it is the turning point where their characters basically swap places. Mm. And I, I, th- mm. I think it's just a way of showing her that she's shed everything. You know, so she's shed her right. clothes and then she's... I sort of thought her standing there in the nude was probably enough. Probably enough. I think that made the point. (laughs) And, you know, the conversation that goes along with that and the fact that then she ends up trying to seduce him or whatever. Mm. There must have been a deeper point to that urination scene that I uh, didn't quite Mm. get. Again, it was one of the things in this movie, like the budgie smuggler dude, that I sort of went... Why, why did you do that? Mm. Yeah, I think there's definitely a purpose to it. And I think it is something along the lines of she has shed her clothes and everything like that. And it's like, how much more can I do? You know, and then that's the, 
taking it to the next level, I suppose. It's like, I can't shed anything more than this, you know. I've completely shed that person that I was when I went to India. And I think that's probably something like that is what Jane Campion was going for. Whether an audience is going to accept that, I, I mean, it must have been controversial, but yeah. Yeah, there's a suggestion that it was really, she's this person saying, right, you, take me as you find me. This is me. This is who I am. You've seen all of me now. Um, so more than being and apparently, vulnerable, yeah. it's more a position of power. Again, I think it was something that probably meant a lot more at the time than it makes sense to us now because there's been this whole body movement in female fashion and modelling and all that kind of stuff. Yes. You know, natural bodies, you know, and all that kind of stuff, which wasn't the case at the time. Well, I, I think we could not have talked about Holy Smoke without talking about that scene but there we go and i reckon we've covered everything so um that was holy smoke and now let's cut live to this week's movie night for the rolling of the bingo ball so let's go over to you future jason Alrighty, so here we are <laughs> what are we looking for this week will has already called 17 but we'll see what comes out and we have number is it 21? 31? 31. 31. That looks like a 31 to me. Well, okay, we've got a bit of controversy. Having trouble identifying the number. Can we have an independent adjudicator? 31. Oh, I see what you're saying. No, yep. it's 31. It's a 31. It's a 31. Okay, so now going to the spreadsheet. Let's bring it up. I can see what you're saying. It's probably going So 31 is a movie called Rushmore. These are the names that define our world. The artists who shaped our minds. The rebels who challenged our views. But of all these legends, there is one that stands above all others. I'm sorry, did someone say my name? <laughs> What's the secret, Max? The secret? I think you just gotta find something you love to do and then do it for the rest of your life. For me, it's going to rush more. Sharp little guy. He's one of the worst students we've got. We're putting you on what we call sudden death academic probation. Could I see some documentation on that, please? Did you invite that kid to your party? Max Fisher. Come on, Dad, there's gonna be girls there. I'd rather die. Pull your head out of your... Maybe I'm spending too much of my time starting up clubs and putting on plays. It's time, homie. Kiss me, little one. I should probably be trying harder to score chicks. I like your hat. You're a teacher here, aren't you? Oh, I'm so glad you could come. I want you to meet a friend of mine, Peter Flynn, Max Fisher. Hi. Who's this guy? Has it ever crossed your mind that you're far too young for me? I like your nurse's uniform, guy. These are OR scrubs. Oh, are they? I don't know what you see in her. I, I don't think she's right for you. What's that supposed to be? Hello, Herman. How are you, Rosemary? I know about you and the teacher. Does Max know? She's about five foot three, 112 pounds, glasses. You know, you and Herman deserve each other. You're both little children. War does funny things to men. You'll find a pair of safety glasses and some earplugs underneath your seats. Please feel free to use them. What do you think of Max's latest opus? It's good. But let's hope it's got a happy ending. 
Rushmore. Thank you very much. And that has been paired this week with a movie called The Faculty. From Kevin Williamson, the writer of Scream and Scream 2, and Robert Rodriguez, the director of Desperado, and from Dusk Till Dawn comes a new science fiction thriller. No more pencils, no more books, no more teachers' dirty looks. The students at Harrington High have always suspected their teachers were from another planet. Is this going to be on the test? This is the test. This time, they're right. Now, these six students won't just question authority. They'll have to destroy it. The faculty. Please report to the principal's office. Okay, so that's the two movies that we'll be watching next week. And Craig, before we go, are there any parting words? I'm just uh, excited to see where the bingo ball is going to take us this week, Jason. (laughs) So let's end things as always by leaving the final word to Margaret and David. And from us, it's goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. And now to the bottom of the corporate food chain with the drones of Office Space. Office Space is the first live-action feature by Mike Judge, who created Beavis and Butthead. Judge's well-developed screenplay seems to know what it's on about. The satiric bars mostly hit the mark, but the minor characters are amusing and well-portrayed, and I think a lot of people will find the jokes in the film relate to the workplace here in Australia. Well, not really, not for me. There are situations that you recognise, that you see yourself in, you remember the frustration and it's funny looking back at them, but the screenplay has never been developed with a very strong narrative and I found it incredibly tedious. Those two tired motion people are wonderful, aren't they? No. What's your score for this one, David? I'm going to give it three. It was all too much hard work for me, David. One and a half.